Hey, it's Espo back to tell you about our friends at DraftKings, and basketball season won't be around forever. So get in on all the action now with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. DraftKings is giving new players a free shot at $1 million. That's right, $1 million in total prizes. Claim your shot at millions of dollars in total prizes when you use the code TBPN during sign-up. That's code TBPN. Playing daily fantasy basketball is simple. Just pick your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see your team stack up against the competition. Feel the sweat like never before. Every dunk, steal, assist mean so much more when you're playing DraftKings Daily Fantasy. It is unbelievable how much more you enjoy a random Kings Clippers game on a Wednesday evening or a Nets Knicks matchup, whatever you're watching. I mean, it could be even worse. It could be like the magic and somebody like the magic and rockets. It makes it more fun to play with DraftKings daily fantasy sports and their fantasy lineup for basketball. So download the DraftKings app now and use the code TBPN during signup. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. The code TBPN and get you can get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Tonight's matchup on the solar panel, Espo versus the Solar Fox versus Carmel Thunder. All right. Hey, and welcome to a midweek stimmy edition of the solar panel, a Phoenix sun show. You're listening to Dave King uh, and uh, Saul and Espo are off doing their own little things in the midweek. So it's just me. I get the privilege of talking to a new published author, Jake Fisher, who has worked previously at Slam Magazine, at Sports Illustrated, and uh, now works for Bleacher Report. Uh, Jake put out a book uh, that just got released in the past week. It's called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. So obviously, uh, the, the book is about the tanking era, which took over the NBA uh, by storm in the past 10 years, much to, to uh, com- fans of competitive basketball chagrin, for sure. Uh, because if your team isn't good enough, all of a sudden, now your, your, your team's front office decisions, the, the, how, they, how they build a roster and all that has been either winning the whole championship or tanking all the way down to the to the worst record in the league, and that's really frustrating for fans of a team that just want to see their team succeed. And it's tough to watch the players get really frustrated on the court when uh, you know that they were set up to lose. So, so tell me about your uh, your experience with this. What got you into this as a as a as a book idea, and uh, your your overall uh, message in the book. Yeah, I mean, for fans of SB Nation, I got my start at Liberty Ballers covering the Sixers 
the same time I was at Slam and, and, and making my way into that uh, space, um, right when Sam Hinkie came to power in 2013, which for Suns fans was right when, you know, Ryan McDonough took over Phoenix. And I was in school at Northeastern in Boston, moonlighting at night at TD Garden um, for Slam with a cruncher on my neck as the Celtics, you know, remember they traded KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn the same night that Hinky moved Drew Holiday to New Orleans and started the process. So it felt like as there was this rise of analytical executives around the league with Ryan and Phoenix and Hinky and Rob Hennigan in Orlando, you had David Griffin in Cleveland and Pete D'Alessandro in Sacramento, all coincidentally that happened right before the 2014 draft, which was considered to be the best draft since 03. And who was running the league at that time, but the Miami Heat with three guys from the top five of that 2003 class with LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. So it just kind of all worked out where all these analytical guys said, you know, clearly champions are built with multiple all-stars. The most direct path to get them is at the top of the draft. And if you do get one of them or even two of them in the draft, an all-star will likely come join them at a certain point or maybe even multiple, just like we saw um, with Dwayne Wade pulling uh, James and Bosh to the heat. So, I mean, clearly it worked out like for a lot of these situations. I mean, Phoenix didn't think it'd be Devin Booker at 13 um, and then DeAndre Ayton at one. They didn't think they would tank again after De- after Devin Booker. But sure enough, they get two all-stars. Chris Paul comes to play. You know, Philly has Embiid and Ben Simmons. Boston, they're not necessarily in the contending core right now. Um, but, you know, they were in the conference finals for a lot and they attracted Al Horford and Gordon Hay- uh, Hayward in free agency. So, the strategy clearly had its, had its benefits and had its dividends for a lot of teams. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly, you know, everyone's fan base at least wanted to be like the Celtics, where they only had to tank for a year or so, you know, and then they, then they were able to trade away all-stars for high picks from other teams, like in, this, in that example, trading Garnett and Paul Pierce to Boston uh, to get all those high picks that turned out to be Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown at the, at the peak of that. Boston only had to have one or two bad, one bad year, I think it was even. Uh, they made the playoffs every other year. So that was the ideal. The Sixers and the Suns uh, were two of, and Orlando to an extent, were two of the ones who really, really bottomed out for multiple years to try to get a number of top five picks that would turn into multiple uh, multi-all-stars, basically. Uh, so the Suns, obviously had different success levels than the, than the Sixers did. The Sixers, their biggest problem seemed to be the injuries of the guys that mm-hmm. they were drafting, right? Because uh, you've got the Embiid missed a year, Simmons missed a year. Uh, you, Markel Fultz obviously had his issues, but they had lots of top five picks. So uh, the Sixers really went hard at that. And then the Suns really went hard for a few years too. Can you talk about you? You started Liberty Ballers, so let's just talk about the Sixers for a little bit before we get into what everyone wants to hear about on this podcast, <laughs> which is the Suns. Uh, on the Sixers, what was it like watching all those guys get injured after every draft? Yeah, it, it was it was a wild, weird sequence of events, and you know I do think there's a big misconception about. Sam Hankey and the process being that, you know, there was this idea that they were just trying to pick injured players and kick the can down the road. And, you know, it was called a Ponzi scheme by certain people. Um, But I really think that, you know, 
for the selling point on the book, honestly, for anybody listening is that there's, I did over 300, <clears throat> excuse me, I did over 300 original interviews for this. That's kind of been my calling card dating back to my days at SI. Um, I'm a reporter. I, I find out new information and, um, you know, from, from what I really think from the conversations I've had, Sam wasn't planning to do that year after year after year, especially being that Joel Embiid broke his foot during his workout with the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2014. Cavs officials to this day maintain that that's what happened and that he would have gone number one if he didn't. But they were considering the fact that LeBron might choose to go back to them in free agency in 2014 like he did. And they couldn't take an injured guy with, you know, the, 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 the concept of LeBron immediately returning and the championship, you know, pressure coming right back to Northeast Ohio. So that, that ruled him out. Milwaukee wouldn't take uh, an injured player. I had uh, Bucks owner Mark Lazary on the record in the book telling me that they were trying to make the postseason and they were not going to take – you know, an unfinished product like Andrew Wiggins or an injured guy like Joel Embiid over Jabari Parker. Um, so Embiid fell to them at three, and he wasn't supposed to be hurt a second year either. He broke that foot again right before the 2015 draft. And so I, I think you're right. They, they, the injuries were weird, um, and they were the most brazen, bald rebuild. And I do think the book is a bunch of case studies of rebuilding like Phoenix. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're part of – that equation of moving on from Steve Nash and, and, and starting in earnest before, you know, all the injuries popped up for him in LA. Um, Philly is the brazen, you know, we're tanking, we're trading our 22 year old all-star um, before he even, you know, gets to his prime. Um, but I, th I think they would have been trying to get better more quickly than people really think. Yeah, you're right. If, if, uh, if Embiid had <clears throat> stayed healthy, then there's, probably a good chance that they would have had a much shorter process. That's for sure. Um, the Suns, uh, most of the Suns problems. Let, now let's now let's shift to our favorite team that the listeners are, are wanting to hear about anyway here. Um, They're a fascinating case study for sure. They really are. <laughs> They're a fascinating case study in that it, it feels like uh, Ryan McDonough knew what the formula was. The formula was to tank for a draft pick. Mm -hmm. uh, had a difficult time actually executing tank for high draft picks, which become all-stars and lead your team back to championship caliber where he had trouble with the execution of that in, in terms of uh, keeping the, uh, you know, the players happy as this was going on and then also drafting the right guys. So he mm -hmm. had just a quick recap, Alex Lennon in uh, 2013 uh, as the number five overall pick. That entire draft was kind of a dud, um, ultimately, for the people that were trying to tank for high draft picks at that point. The Suns, uh, he just, Ryan McDonough came in, that was his first pick. Then they magically got good uh, in that 2013-14 season, totally against McDonough's plan. His Vegas, plan had, Vegas had the Suns preseason favorites to be the worst team in the league, even yeah. worse than Hinky Sixers. Yeah. Uh, at like six, I remember 16, 18, um, uh, 16, 18 wins they were supposed to have. And they ended mm -hmm. up with 48. In your, in your travels, let's, let's talk about that 13, 14 Suns team. That was Ryan McDonough's yeah. first team uh, oh, with the Suns. He built that roster. He turned over the entire roster that summer, except for Goran Dragic and a couple of other guys. Mm -hmm. um, he kept the Morai and he kept PJ Tucker. And that was it. <laughs> well, actually, yeah. just Marcus. Um, at the time, I think, uh, and then that was it. Um, 
Tell me what they, was I think they had both guys, not, not they, yeah, they, yeah. yeah, that's right. They picked up sorry, they had Markeith and then they picked up Marcus at the trade deadline that last spring. I think that um, was, was one of the first sorry to keep interrupting. I think that was one of the first things that Ryan McDonough did. He um, it, was, it was Lon Babby, right? Who was the yeah. GF beforehand? Yeah. They they like together negotiated that joint deal where they both signed for four years, whatever, and they kind of like just divvied it up amongst the two of them. Yeah, that was after that 13-14 season for sure. But those two, you're right, had been uh, put together right before McDonough came on. Tell me what your recollection was in your interviews. Uh, what was Ryan's plan, though, for that 13-14 season? Did, did you get any insight on that? Yeah, I mean – he traded for two additional first round picks right off the jump in a, in a, that 2014 class was supposed to be the 2014 class we talked about. And I know from talking to his old people in Boston, Mike Zarin um, and even people in Philly, they were kind of looking at the Suns like, how can we be as tanky as them? How can we get an extra 2014 first round pick too? Like Hinky was trying to get first rounders for Evan and Spencer Evan Turner and Spencer Hawes and Thad Young. Boston was trying to get them for, you know, like Brandon Bass and Jeff Green. Like the fact that McDonough was able to get one for Marcin Gortat and that whole Luis Scola trade to the Pacers. Like I did some reporting where I talked to uh, Peter Dinwiddie, who was the, the Pacers vice president at the time. And Ryan was adamant, you know, if you want Luis Scola, who was a 33-year-old bench scorer. Yeah, he scored 17 points per game that year before. Like, sure, he was a really, really, you know, solid bench contributor. And but the, and the Pacers thought he was going to help push them to past Miami in a playoff series. Um, McDonough was staunch. Like, I need a 2014 first rounder for it and Miles Plumlee. Um, and, you know, then, you know, they traded the Marcin Cortat deal for Emeka Okafor and his herniated disc in his back. He was never going to play at all that year. It was very clear. It was plain as day. They had no intent on winning. Um, but I remember there's a really interesting scene in the book where, you know, they hired Jeff, Mc, uh, Jeff Hornacek. I was going to call him Jeff McDonough. They hired, <laughs> they hired Jeff Hornacek, and, and there was definitely a goal in mind to play fast again, right? Analytics is a big theme of this whole book and, the, and, and this tenure in Phoenix where – you know, the seven seconds or less Suns, everyone knows, kind of spearheaded and opened this era of pace and space basketball, and the numbers suggested it. They wanted to get back to that style. And um, they, they, they were going to, you know, run, run teams ragged and, and, and put up a lot of points, but they weren't going to win a lot of games. But uh, and, and there's a scene in the book where McDonough at the end of training camp comes in the last day. He rallies the team up together and gives this whole speech about this is our group and I believe in you guys, even though, you know, Vegas says we're going to be the worst team in the league and yada, yada, yada. And Channing Fry told me, <clears throat> he translated it as like, don't be too tanky. Like, <laughs> go out there, make us proud, all that type of stuff. Um, but there was definitely a goal in mind to be the worst team in the Western Conference. Absolutely. Yeah, the, uh, what also marked that season was the return of Channing Fry, who had missed the entire mm -hmm. prior season because of the heart issue. And yes. suddenly he was back. Uh, no one knew what to expect. He wasn't even cleared. Like, he couldn't have been traded because he wasn't cleared for, <coughs> um, uh, to play until right before yeah. the season started. So while McDonough was trading off um, Martin Gortat, as you say, and Luis Scola, um, he would have probably tried to trade Channing if he had been healthy, but he didn't. And it couldn't. And then all of a sudden, Channing was available, and Goran and Channing became one of the most 
devastating pick and roll duos in the entire league that year. Um, and Gordon wasn't supposed to be that good either. He had come back the year before and was barely passable as a starting point guard. So yeah, so McDonough came in, tried to lose that first year. Then um, they did get those. They had three draft picks in 2014, but they were all 14 to 27 range. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your What's your recollection of, or what did you hear? What was the Suns' plan at that point? Did it change from tanking to winning? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, they were right in the LeBron sweepstakes. They never were going to get LeBron, but I remember from at the time and from talking to people around the organization since then um, for this book, they, they took the fact that they got a meeting with LeBron's agents that summer as a big pat on the back and as like, you know, a stamp of approval of what they had done. I mean, they, the Suns were really, really fun that year. And, mm-hmm. and I, I really think there's this great detail. Marquise Mars told me that, you know, before they fell out, remember they were the seven seed pretty much for a while. And then Dallas and Memphis caught their tail. Um, I really think that they had this back-to-back, not back-to-back. It was two games in LA. They had the Lakers and the Clippers in some order. Um, and Marquise Mars told me that they really wanted to go out both, both nights before both games and they did and they lost both those games and he out partying Mar- in LA out partying in LA and Mark McMars you know the quote in the book is um you know LA nightlife is undefeated and then they went they went go they go back home to Phoenix and they lose to the Clippers again um I really think if they don't lose those games that that Suns team is in the playoffs that season um and, and, and they were, by all accounts, you know, they won, they won 48 games. You don't do that by accident. More in a second found something that was real. I mean, you mentioned the Goron, Channing Fry pick and pop. I mean, Eric Bledsoe and Miles Plumley were like a legitimate pick and roll duo themselves. And they were finishing, you know, high-flying alley-oops. And that defense is really good. Uh, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but like efficiency-wise, they were a top-10 defense for a large stretch of that season. And they would just get out in the break and beat people. And obviously, it was the two-headed point guard monster. That was the big storyline, right? Eric Bledsoe and Goran Dragic. And when the Suns got word that the Kings were no longer interested in bringing back Isaiah Thomas, um, which was also for curious, stupid circumstances that I talk about in the book as well, they thought, you know, we had this two-guard lineup that just ran teams ragged last year. Let's, let's, Let's make this more of a good thing. Let's bring in a third point guard, too. And I said, I'm more than happy to get into with you. Obviously, as everyone knows now, that was not the missing piece. Ended up being the first domino that led to Goran Dragic's trade request and then the whole team sputtering back to being the number one pick in, you know, 2017-2018 to get the under eight, in which, you know, they shouldn't have been back there in the first place at all. So it's pretty fascinating that how that goal – and that's why I think the Suns were interesting to include in this book – they didn't stay the course. They got distracted by um, by that winning, that taste of winning. And, and, you know, ownership played a huge factor. I really do believe that. And um, But they still they still, they still, still went after Isaiah Thomas and, and, and dropped that, you know, um, different variable into the equation. And, and things uh, definitely took a turn for the worse. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of the owner, you brought him up. Uh, what was your understanding uh, from talking to different people around the league about about Robert Sarver's involvement in the um, t- uh, building to lose, then suddenly winning and, and trying to win from there. Yeah, I mean, when Goron came back to the team for that 2012-13 year, um, you know, they trade Steve Nash. 
in that sign and trade to the Lakers, Sarver told him like, this is your team now. Like we are going to be, we're going to run as you run. And I mean, you don't, you don't go after Isaiah Thomas without ownership approving it and, and, and being, and every single owner, especially an owner in, in a smaller market, obviously Phoenix isn't Milwaukee, but you know, it's not Dallas or Houston or LA. No offense to Suns fans out there. I'm sure everyone knows yeah. that. Um, and, and to get a, to get a, I mean, during that, during the Nash era, right. You know, that, that arena was jumping and loud and considered to be one of the hardest paces to play in the whole NBA. And I, I'm sure that was enticing to get back to. Um, but they were all in on Isaiah and, and going, going in for him definitely pissed off Goran Dragic and Goran Dragic personally with Sarver. That dynamic was a real reason why he ended up giving his trade request and, um, you know, he meddled a lot. I mean, later on with the Hornacek getting fired eventually um, in the 15-16 season. Um, I, I hope I have my date right there. I think that's when it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. by all accounts, from talking to people around the league, around the organization, that's kind of been a theme to how he hires his executives and his coaches. He, he, he finds a favorite and he empowers them. Hornacek, for example, was a player – with the Suns when Sarver was just a fan. He loved him and really wanted to, to see if that former player could be a good head coach. And as, as Hornacek started to fall out of favor with him, he really started to fall in love with Earl Watson, who was only really brought in to be someone as a chip to, to pursue LaMarcus Aldridge in free agency in 2015. But, you know, Earl Watson is this John Wooden disciple and speaks so, you know, persuasively and with this energy yeah. and that really got Sarver's attention and same thing with um how James Jones rose to power not I mean that's not to say that James Jones doesn't deserve his position and obviously he's in the running for executive of the year and probably gets just as much credit for hiring Monty Williams as any other move but it definitely seems to be that the leadership structure and the way that team has been built has ebbed and flowed with Robert Sarver's mood and how he and, and whoever he's ended up getting closer with. Yeah. Um, every single hire he's made since taking over the team has been uh, until Monty Williams was a head coach with no coaching head coaching experience prior. And then every GM he's hired has been somebody who had never been a GM before ever and that's still true with james jones so i we, we've had a lot of back and forth in in Suns fandom on on what exactly he's done because he surprises us that sometimes there are players who say they swear by him they think he's great and um obviously on, on a businessman level steve nash even still works with robert sarver they co-own a, a soccer team a football mm -hmm. team um, and, uh, so he's, he's obviously still somebody worth working with and, and not, not every player has left angry with him, but we're just floored by the fact that he always never, he never hires anybody of significance when he fills front office and coaching positions. And he just got lucky this time. Um, <clears throat> so now we're at, uh, 2015, 16, everything falling apart. You just talked about the Goran Dragic trade demand, um, uh, going to Miami. And um, now the Suns are ready to tank all over again. So what, what was your understanding of, of their plan going into the 16, 17, and 18 drafts? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you have to back up to the 15 trade deadline when Goran makes that request. And he, he goes to Miami. And I think Sarver was caught off guard. Ryan McDonough was caught off guard, I think, which I also think is kind of funny because – 
Gordon was already a little bit frustrated back in 13-14. He saw Steph and Dame, you know, blowing up and thought, you know, I should be an all-star right now, but I'm not getting that attention because I'm sharing a backcourt. He did get the All-NBA nod, but then he wasn't – he really – I mean, all-star is what these guys really care about, I think. And um, um, when they do end up moving on from him, they still – wanted to have another another two-guard system. Like, they moved on Isaiah Thomas to Boston. The Celtics were just as in on Isaiah back in that free agency as Phoenix was, but Phoenix offered a little bit more money, and, um, you know, they, they come within a hair of the playoffs, right? Boston wasn't – you know, they were a more attractive opportunity for Isaiah. Um, but the, the Celtics were tracking him all along, and, um, you know, they made a call back in December of that year, of, of December of fourteen. Um, and when, when that team wasn't, when the Suns weren't getting off to a hot start and they were just checking in, calling their old friend Ryan McDonough and saying, Hey, you know, what's the temperature there? He said, you know, we're not going to trade him. They called, they checked in again early that trade deadline, um, in, in 15, that, that February in 2015 and said, you know, what's the deal with Isaiah? And in that morning, you know, he said no. But, you know, famously that whole 14 kind of deal with the Bucks and the Sixers and M- MCW, um, it came together very late. I think because from what I've been told, Hinky really engineered that three-team swap with the Bucks and the Suns. The Bucks wanted Mike Carter-Williams all along. He was Jason Kidd and, my, and John Hammond's like pet point guard project of the future. But Hinky wanted nobody um, from the Bucks. He really found nobody on that roster that was available. Like he wanted Giannis, but they weren't getting Giannis. Um, so he was shopping around, and Phoenix, even though they moved on from Goron, even though they were considering moving Isaiah. They needed another guard, and that's when they set their sights on Brandon Knight. So Philly, Philly knew that, and that's how Sam engineered that three-team deal because he wanted that Lakers pick from the Suns in the Steve Nash sign-and-trade. Um, and obviously getting Brandon Knight, who was you know, a borderline all-star himself that season, theoretically he would have been a perfect pairing next to Bledsoe because he wasn't – you know, ball dominant. He was ball dominant, but he wasn't, you know, a true, true point guard, which that's kind of where the Suns' three-headed monster was an issue. It was three guys who viewed themselves as the point guard, yeah. and that was an issue. I think Brandon Knight would have been a really good fit alongside Bledsoe, but, of course, the injuries never allowed that to happen. And when he's, you know, in and out of the lineup, um, and Alex Len, who, you know, the book starts in 2013 with – I'd bring you two neurons in the wall's draft table as John Calipari is freaking out as he's falling from one to six. And, you know, the Suns were not taking neurons over Alex Len for multiple reasons. They weren't taking him because the Andy Miller and neurons agency, you know, representation group, they weren't giving up neurons medical records um, until the very last second. And, McDonough and I think his son staff also thought that Alex Len was going to be a harder worker. Like there is all this talk about how much muscle he'd put on at, at Maryland. And he obviously never became what the Suns thought. Like they told Demarcus Aldridge in his 2015 free agency meeting, we're going to be signed Tyson Chandler for you. And by the time Tyson's, you know, at the tail end of his career, Alex Len will be here to be your center. And he never became that either. So right. all these gambles that they made thinking that they were going to just replace this piece with that piece. And they were going to continue building towards the postseason, They all flopped. And they really had no other opportunity. You know, they're sitting there at the end of 15-16, right back where they were when Ryan took over. And you're right. Yeah. They, they had no other opportunity because, just like you said at the top of this uh, conversation, McDonough knew the formula. 
he had kind of screwed it up to the beginning. I think he admits that now. Um, and it was time to do it again. And, and sure enough, the Bennett, it, it worked out. They got DeAndre Ayton. They have Derek Devin Booker and Chris Paul, you know, comes to this offseason. So it was the right strategy. They just never got to – McDonough's front office never got to finish it up. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild because you talk about uh, the whole series of GMs that were hired back around 2013, 2014. You got Hennigan. You've got um, even, I mean, I would even include Rich Cho and, and Charlotte yeah. there. Uh, and, and, of course, you've got Hinky and McDonough and guys like that um, that all got jobs all about the same time to do the same thing, which is play the game the analytical way, the way Daryl Morey wanted to play it, mm-hmm. and, and to consider tanking as your strategy to get the high picks. Um, Hennigan tried it, and, and, and Rich Cho never really did the tanking part, but he certainly tried to go for the, the analytical yeah. part. Um, it's amazing that uh, most of those guys actually ended up failing at what they tried to do, and I think it was maybe Hennigan who was the last one standing. I, I can't – trying to think of Hennigan, – Hennigan got fired before McDonough did in 2017. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Uh, McDonough should not have been the last one standing. I'd say <laughs> he he lasted a year or two too long, uh, for sure. I think the Ryan McDonough chapter coming to a close is especially ironic too, being that by all accounts from people I've talked to around the league, they really got fired before the 18-19 season because they couldn't put a point guard next to, Dev- to Devin Booker. And this is the team that had too many point guards, right? Yeah. It's just the irony is so cutting. Um, I don't understand how he made it through the summer to build the roster. It was actually the worst one he had put together in six attempts at building a roster. They, they only won, I think, 19 games that year. And um, it was while he had DeAndre Ayton and Mikel Bridges as, as rookies. Um, no one's even sure who was the one who really picked DeAndre Ayton over Luka. Um, and no one from that front office and coaching staff will actually say who actually made that choice. Did you get any insight into that? No, I don't. I don't have the answer for you, unfortunately. But I, I do think <laughs> there was there was thought around the league at the time that Aiton was a can't miss big man prospect in terms of like what yeah. he's doing right now is what he was built to do. And um, there really wasn't. And, and in my, I mean, I had him number one on my board. I'm, I'm not. I'm not an NBA executive, but I think there was a lot of thought around the league that. I mean, he just was going to be this. And yeah, Luca could have been Luca, what he's doing now, but there was a much bigger risk factor. And at that point in time, um, at that point in time, like especially with um, Devin being the guy, I think that was part of the issue too in 1819, not finding a point guard. I mean, I talked to a lot of executives with the Suns who they were, they were very high on Devin, but they didn't think he was going to have the ability to, to produce off the bounce like he has. I think they were a bit – allured by him becoming an on-ball guy. I think that was also an issue and why they never paired him with a a true point. And I think that was also an issue with Luca. Like, I mean, sure. I'm not just willing to say that Luca is going to have, like, he's incredible and a generational type, you know, feel for the game type of guy, but I'm not necessarily willing to just say right now that he's going to have a better career than Devin. Um, I mean, that might be a little bit of a hot take, but there's just my, my biggest takeaway from, from my time covering the league, from reporting this book, is that, you know, the personality equation and the NBA being a workplace is something that really gets overlooked a lot of the time. And 
from my time with, with talking to Devin Booker, he was a young, immature little kid when he came into the league, and he's grown into a, a real franchise leader. And Luka is struggling with that right now in Dallas. Obviously, you know, the Mavericks are in the playoffs, and they have been. Um, and he's, you know, MVP candidate and an all-star starter and all that. But there's a lot of word and whispers around the league right now about, you know, his referee actions are, are kind of um, – they're kind of reflected in how he also acts around the organization, apparently. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Devin, I remember seeing him at a shoot around when he was like a second year player, just kind of goofing off and, and yelling rap lyrics out left and right. And now that guy's a, a freaking assassin. He's, he's here to score and win and he's trying harder on defense right now. So I, I, I do give the Suns credit for a finding him at 13. They didn't think he'd become this, mm-hmm. but B I, I I think there wasn't necessarily – they weren't necessarily wrong for trying to give him a path to become, like, the solo creator offensively because he's clearly obviously thriving off of Chris Paul right now, but he he was really good at navigating pick and rolls as the ball handler himself. So I don't necessarily fault them for trying to, to explore that possibility. Yeah, they gave him a couple of years when he was starting to show that on-ball ability. Um, now, obviously, they did it really poorly two years ago because they put Isaiah Kanan as the starter next to him who just can't yes. do anything on the basketball court. All love – Isaiah Kanan's a great person individually as a person person. Awesome. But man, dude. just not really an NBA guy. And you probably know him. I think he played for the Sixers at one point too. You probably remember him from that. He, he was uh, the starting point guard at one point for Philly. Just And just as much as Suns fans <laughs> like himself were disappointed in that, Philly people also uh, – Yeah realized realized the limit on what he could do for a team as a starting point guard right and then they brought in then james jones finally goes no no uh he needs a point guard so they brought in ricky rubio for a year and now chris paul but uh devin would not be the player he is today if he didn't have a couple of years of being the lead guy for a while so i mean we can take that as a definite positive and and thanks for your comments on eight and i i've I've been a big uh supporter in that he is the kind of guy who can win you a championship because he doesn't need to be the only guy with the ball, DeAndre Aiden now. Um, he can do all the things that everyone else doesn't want to do defensively and all that. And he definitely um, won't be your, your lead. He won't be an MVP who wins the, uh, you know, wins the league MVP, but he could someday be a finals MVP in his own way, uh, kind of like Andre Iguodala became a finals MVP at one point because he did all the right things to help the team win the championship, even though he was like their sixth best player on the Golden State Warriors. So um, anyway, digressing a little bit there. Um, definitely uh, thank you for your time here uh, talking about your book. I'm not sure how uh, – I haven't gotten to the end of the book, but do you get to the um, – how, how recent do you get on, on uh, talking about the league and, and teams' individual efforts to tank to win? Yeah, the book, I mean, the tanking era, I think, really stems from 12 to 16, where, you know, the Lakers are start taking Steve Nash and Dwight Howard from Phoenix and Orlando, while, you know, Boston and Philly and those other, and those two teams are really trying to get to that 2014 class. And there's a theme that, that emerges throughout where Hinky gets pushed out in 16, just as there's the whole Scott Skiles blow up in Orlando and George Carl gets fired in Sacramento. The, the, the Celtics emerge as a true playoff team. And then the epilogue kind of does show the conclusion of Ryan McDonough briefly and Rob Hennigan briefly and talks about the lottery reform eventually getting passed in 2017. Um, 
So it doesn't really include the 2018 draft, like DeAndre and then so on and so forth. But um, it, it, it does talk about how the first year of lottery reform in 2019 when Zion is the prize, you know, the Knicks don't they're, – they're by far the worst team in the league. They tank for that top spot, but they only have that 14% chance instead of 25. They fall to three. And, you know, everyone considers tanking to be dead. But sure enough, I mean, we're seeing this 2021 class is considered to be the best class since that 14 class, which was, you know, the best since 03. There's a clear top five. And OKC and Houston are more brazenly tanking than Sam Hinkie ever did. They're sending Al Horford home for half the year. John Wall is sitting healthy on the, on the Rockets bench watching Kevin Porter Jr., you know, shoot 30 times a game and whatnot. Now, they, that, that was not something Philly was ever doing. They were playing their veterans and, and trying to give young guys opportunity as well, but they would trade those guys away at the deadline. And in the second half of the year, they weren't just resting guys. So clearly tanking is alive and well, especially when there's there's considered to be elite franchise training talents like DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker at the top of this class. So I think it'll be here as long as a team's draft positioning is tied to their record and the benefits are clear. And we're going to see – you know, OKC, Detroit, Orlando, you name it, trying to become the next Phoenix Suns being at the top of the Western Conference. Yeah, the Suns are the uh, third fastest team ever to go from one of the bottom two records to one of the top two records in the league. And with only four games to go, I think they're, uh, they've got a pretty good chance of finishing that out. Um, so, yeah, so hopefully, like you say, um, uh, we'll be able to say that the Suns actually were one of the best winners of the tanking battle. Uh, uh, with or without Ryan McDonough being the ringleader of it the, the entire way. Uh, and other teams will try to emulate the Suns. So thank you for your time, Jake. I appreciate it. I know you got to get off to other promotional work. Good luck <laughs> with your book. Uh, the book is called Built to Lose. It is uh, available on all of your book buying apps and all that stuff. You can download it, I'm sure, e-copies as well as get hard copies. I personally have a hard copy. I still like reading hard copy books. It's a really great read about the whole tanking era and the Suns are prominently featured in there. Uh, Jake, where else can we find you um, all, all over the internet as a writer? Yeah, I write a weekly thing, a reported column for Bleacher Report pretty much every Monday. Um, a couple of things that pop up differently um, throughout the week, but that's kind of my schedule. But uh, yeah, this, this is my, my, my real uh, show right now. I, I appreciate anybody who reads it. And again, like I said at the top, you know, the 300 original interviews, um, the storytelling in there, I mean, the stuff about, you know, the, the, the LA partying and other details about that Suns team. I mean, there's a great scene on the bus at that 2015 trade deadline as the team's oh, getting yeah. ready to leave for the plane and every player is walking off one by one. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there that you might have heard a little bit about publicly before, um, but most of it's all stuff you've never heard before that you won't find anywhere else. So that, that, that is my, my closing sales pitch, and uh, anyone who buys it, I would greatly appreciate it. I definitely think it's worth the read. I've, like I said, I got my own copy. Uh, good luck to you, Jake, and uh, we'll hear from you again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you, Dave.